0: Hello, this is Stephanie.
1: And this is Brian.
2: And this is Carly.
0: Welcome to the making and the remaking of A Codependent Mind.
1: This is our first episode of our guest season. Carly has been nice enough to reach out and provide a story, and we're going to talk about her story on this episode.
0: That's right. We're going to hear about another making and remaking of A Codependent Mind. Because like we said before, there are lots and lots of commonalities in terms of people's experiences. And the behaviors that came from those experiences, and the effects that those behaviors had on their lives. But there's also really interesting and compelling differences about how people have um, pulled themselves out of the trauma and the the resulting codependent behaviors that they formed in response to that trauma.
2: So, welcome, Carly. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Um, thank you, Stephanie and and Brian, for for inviting me along, and you know for sharing your story. Over your last few seasons, I want to express that the episodes and seasons you have done prior to this have been a huge part in the remaking of of my mind and in opening up vocabulary, words, um, ways to identify what is actually happening inside of my relationships, inside my life. And so, yeah, I just want to to thank you for. educational insight that you have provided to me, and I'm sure to to many others.
0: That means a a great deal to us. And we really appreciate you saying that. You know, we have to say that Even though it's Brian's story and we're the ones doing the podcast, it's been a similar learning journey for us doing the podcast. Being in dialogue with other people about what has happened to you, I think makes a huge difference. So again, we we really appreciate you bringing your voice here and sharing it with the listeners because I think... It will have a similar effect.
1: Yeah, and and the things that you wrote in your write up, there's already new vocabulary that I like and will probably use from from here forward.
0: So let let, let's talk about that. Let's talk. Let's start talking about your story. And you described for us a somewhat chaotic childhood. Can you talk a little bit what that looked like?
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, And I want to give a little bit of context. So I was the fourth born out of uh, four siblings, and. I only have one sibling that shares the same mother and father. And so my oldest sibling, she was my father's oldest child, and her mom died when she was a year and a half old. So that left my father to be a widower at 19 years old.
0: Ooh. Mm-hmm.
2: And I think that brings a lot of context to my story. It kind of lays a, a big tone on the picture. So I was born um, in a very small town. And I was actually conceived a year after my parents had been divorced. So it was kind of like they got back together to talk about, I don't know, child support or something. (laughs) And I was conceived. And so my mom really permanently, I guess not permanently, but my mom left the house when I was two years old. Um, And so I was raised primarily by my father, who was in a lot of ways, unavailable. He was very deep in addiction, um, very deep in mental illness. And I didn't ever really know him to be employed. And so we were a family on welfare. And my oldest sister, the one that her mother passed away when she was very young, uh, she was like 14 when I was born. So really, she was my primary caregiver. And probably the um, probably the most stable person in in the household. so that was kind of my my beginnings.
0: That's hard. Yeah.
2: it was it, it was hard, you know, but we survived, and I always like, I guess kind of had to fend for myself um, because my oldest sister she did end up you know getting married, having children when I was about three years old. And so I learned at a very young age how to cook eggs and how to take care of myself, do my own laundry, things like that. And I was kind of, (laughs) I was a rebel. I I was, I was difficult. I, well, no, that actually, I'm going to take that back. I wasn't difficult. Um,
1: Were you told you were difficult?
2: (laughs) No, no. I think that I just told myself that because I was often getting in trouble and um, acting out and I think that a lot of that was for attention that I wasn't getting in the ways that I needed, so I would find ways to to get attention.
0: I'm wondering if this is going to be a thread because we've heard Brian describe himself because he was described as a difficult baby. Uh, and then our first guest, we heard Jason also describe himself as a needy and demanding child, and now you're you're talking about this story that you had about yourself and your childhood that that you were the problem essentially.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that I was ever necessarily like told that, but it was a story that I crafted in my own mind. And you know, I, I've listened to you guys talk to Jason and, and as well your story, Brian, about that. and it really opened me up to thinking like, maybe I wasn't I, I wasn't the problem, right? There was a lot of other problems going on, and I was responding and reacting. To those things,
0: and it's almost if if it's easier to think of yourself as the problem than to challenge the people in your life for not caring for you the way that they should have been.
2: Yeah, it's it was much safer for me to tell myself that I was the problem because I I could handle my own reaction as compared to if I was to tell my father that he was the problem. That reaction may have been very scary, and uh, who knows at that age it's like you don't know if you're going to survive
0: exactly
1: yeah so you assumed you were the problem yes i i can relate to that
0: there's um a physician i've mentioned before dr gabor Matei. i don't know if you're familiar with his work i'm not huh? he says that there are two basic human needs the need for attachment and the need for authenticity and if we're challenged to choose one We always choose the need for attachment, which makes sense, of course, because when we're young, before we know how to make our own eggs, (laughs) you know, the attachment to our caregivers is critical for our survival. So we give up our authenticity in order to maintain that attachment.
2: Yeah, I can identify with that a lot. And I think that that plays into how my, you know, um, preteen and teenage years turned out because in my home I saw my father happy when drugs and sex were involved. So, you know, when I knew that the bag was full of, of drugs, my dad was happy. I, I started beginning to put these things together. When he, his supply ran out, he was not. He was asleep. He was angry. When women were over, he was happy. When they were not, <laughs> it was very empty and, and a sad, sad environment. And so at nine years old... I began doing drugs and I began having sex because those are things that I thought were a source of happiness and a source of purpose.
0: And maybe safety as well?
2: Yes, yeah. It was a way that I could feel close to my dad and, and maybe even understand him and also understand my mom because even though I didn't see much of her, she was in and out of our lives. I I knew that the story or the narrative was that she was a drug addict and so i believed that she chose drugs over us and so i i had like a desire to understand what is the hype like what is what is the deal with these drugs like how could i mean they're clearly more valuable than i am you know and and so i wanted i wanted to understand that and feel that and and i think that once i began partaking in those two things it catapulted into some pretty <laughs> pretty intense behaviors, because then as I began sharing those things with my friends or with other people, I started to be liked. People wanted to hang out with me. I, I had the drugs. I, I had my body, mm. and I was willing to give and share, and it was a way that I sourced love and acceptance from people.
1: It was a tool, and it worked.
2: It did. It worked.
0: It also, unfortunately, kind of probably confirmed what you felt about yourself, and in relation to the world, that you that you needed these things in order to get love.
2: Correct. Yes. It, it affirmed my narrative that inherently I was not enough and that I needed to leverage something more than myself, something outside of myself in order to be enough. So
0: originally these things and these behaviors solved a problem, a problem that you were in an unstable and unsafe environment and were not getting the love and attention that you needed as a child. So they solved that problem, but then they started to create other problems in your life. They were not good solution long-term.
2: Correct. And I think it solved two problems for me, which was, you know, acceptance and love from other people. But it also helped me to feel or not feel things because we're talking chemicals, right? And Mm -hmm. when I would get high or I would get drunk, or even when I would light a cigarette, I would feel a relief of my anxiety, I would feel a relief of my anger. It began to be a tool that I used for leveraging love, but also for leveraging sanity and for bringing peace into myself. So it became a big necessity quickly for me.
1: I had that same experience with alcohol at times where even though it was kind of a small window for me most of the time, where I actually felt that relief it gave me that. And I knew it was going to give me that from whatever chaos was going in my, in my head. And, and I didn't really even realize it was chaos, but just somehow I was just like, well, this works. And it did. Yeah. Like you said, I mean, it does to some extent.
2: Yeah. I, especially at first, right. When, when we're first doing it and we don't have a tolerance built up, it's like, it quickly creates a change in, in internally. And, But once that tolerance gets built up it's like then the desperation starts to peak and frantic and i actually when i was 10 years old i didn't have any drugs and my friend and i got into my dad's medicine cabinet and we each took a pill didn't feel anything took another pill didn't feel anything and we ended up emptying two bottles of pills and unknowingly (laughs) they were trazodone and muscle relaxers so in total i took 16 and a half pills and we were like jumping on the trampoline and then we started to feel it. <laughs> and I don't know how long we laid on the couch in my living room before my sister found us, but it seemed like hours and I couldn't move. I I was a vegetable, but my mind was able to work. I was thinking I'm dying. Like I, I am dead. And uh, it was one of these scariest things of my life. But it was because of that, that desperation, I wanted to get high and it wasn't working. Yeah. So I just kept taking more. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely terrifying. But I survived it.
1: So I relate to this too, in that you're saying basically you had this combination of things, this need for others to love you or even just like you. And then this Which we uh, all have. Yeah, right. Right. I mean, that is a need, yeah, right? Yes. Yeah. But kind of an overwhelming need to where mm-hmm. I'm going to do whatever it takes, even if it's being inauthentic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this not wanting to listen to your emotions and wanting to mask them or hide them or avoid them with the drug use.
2: Yeah.
0: So you had a this relationship with alcohol and, and with sex and that they were tools to both access love, as you say, access attention that you both needed and deserved to have but also ways to numb the emotions, the terrifying emotions that you would be feeling on a regular basis. Did that play out in your romantic relationships as well as, as you got got older that they became spaces to access love and attention, but also spaces to escape certain emotions?
2: Yes. So I started having relationships at a, at a pretty young age. Um, and I was often introducing these two tools to my partners. So, you know, they were often virgins or often, um, you know, people that hadn't been high before. And so I would like introduce them to these, these things. For me, it was almost like chasing a high. So I've referred to myself before in the past as a womanizer. I, I realized that I was gender fluid at a young age meaning i didn't necessarily identify with either male or female but i i knew even my first grade teacher was a woman and i i knew i was attracted to women and and not to men and so and, and my family was was affirming of that there was no problem there in fact there was some dysfunction there of like my dad saying yeah it's fine if you bring women home just as long as you bring one home from for me as well and and i mean that's when i'm a, a very young teenager but it became this this thing of a chase because what I was looking for was love and and acceptance and to escape my feelings of I think rejection a lot from my mother and so I would chase a person and then once I got them into bed then I would become disinterested because I had achieved their love I had I had deemed myself worthy because I was able to air quoting here conquer
0: so that was the high it was the high and it was all downhill from there
2: correct once i had achieved that high with that person i was ready to move on to the next because the next high (laughs) with that person would not be as much as i needed it to be but it's kind of funny because well actually it's not funny
1: i say that all the time (laughs) 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 yeah
2: It's interesting because although I would discard them as my main, I guess, target, I would keep them close so that I would still have that as a source if I needed it. And I could draw a parallel here with drugs. It's like, even though I had that strand, I would be going primarily after a new strand, a better, a a different feeling, but I would keep that strand in my drawer for, say, if I failed at, air quote, conquering the next one. So I kept people at a very tight grip, but at an arm's distance.
0: How did you understand that behavior at the time, do you remember? How, how would you explain it to the people you were leaving, um, and to yourself, why you were continually leaving people?
2: I don't think that I understood it at the time, um, but I think that my behavior was... I think the word stoic, I I would be just untouchable. And I think this is where some codependent behaviors come in, as well as narcissistic behaviors. And I think in one of your most recent episodes, Brian expressed this, that he would, would have these codependent behaviors, but there would also be these narcissistic actions <laughs> And so I would codependently like reel them in. I would be a chameleon. I would do whatever it was that I needed to please this person and to get them to love me and, and all of this. And then once I achieved their love, then I would narcissistically just become cold and untouchable. I would essentially say like, why are you making such a big deal out of this? It's not, it, it wasn't love. It's, you know, this is casual. This is, this is not everything that I said it was in the beginning. <laughs> and it was very gaslighty. And I didn't understand that I was doing those things at the time, but I had a desperate need to get my next fix. And so I would do whatever it took in order to answer that calling inside of me. And I hurt a lot of people doing this. When I began doing the 12 steps and it was time to make amends, Ooh, I had a list. It took a while. Yeah, well, it, it did. And there was quite a few people, rightfully so, that didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear a word from me. And I I accept that because my behaviors were, were very harmful to myself and to many others.
0: I just saw a meme on Instagram <laughs> that is relevant. And the Brian and I talked about it's, um It was talking about narcissism and codependency and warning that once you start reading about narcissism you're going to recognize some behaviors but that doesn't make you a narcissist it just means that narcissism like codependent behaviors comes out of trauma some of these behaviors are shared <laughs> between people yeah. who would we would describe as having narcissistic personality dependency and people who are having codependency a lot
1: of them are kind of similar we've been mm-hmm. having these conversations a lot lately trying to because we did a whole episode on it in the first season codependency and narcissism but I remember thinking at the time it was more like branches on a tree. The same trauma can result in the two, and then they just diverge from there and they're like way far apart in style. But there's a lot of crossover, I think, between codependency and narcissism. There is.
2: I would agree with that. And I also, like, I was having these thoughts after we had had connected and I was trying to decide how to write my my story because there was so much of this crossover and I was confused. And I remember being like, Am I a narcissist? And
0: and (laughs) it
2: was messy, messy. And then I think the most recent episode you guys had released where Brian had said there was this crossover, I felt this wave of like I guess I, I felt seen. I felt like I'm not crazy. I'm not that unicorn out there that nobody understands or or whatnot, and and I felt, I felt an acceptance that like it's okay that these two behaviors were existing inside of me.
1: Yeah, you didn't break the code. It's not <laughs> right. one or the other. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah.
2: It, it sounds very much like
0: a freeze, freeze, flight response. That moment when you're post high, that you have that panicked feeling of what lies before you and the need to to go back to that chase mm-hmm. and the high that results from it. Yeah,
1: and there could have been other elements, too, that you didn't even realize, too, that you didn't want to get too close because of the emotional avoidance. I was afraid of intimacy without knowing I was afraid of intimacy. I thought I was all about it, but I just had so much unresolved shame that it was just too hard to imagine that stuff coming up. And so if I start started feeling as though I was getting close to someone, then it's like, well, I, you know, I just kind of unconsciously back away or sabotage or something like that. You know, I mean, there could have been some elements of that also.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned masking in the in the write-up that, that you did do and you, you shared with us.
1: That's yeah, a great term.
0: It is a great term. Can you talk a little bit about what that felt like for you, what that looked like, this, this masking that you've done for a lot of your life?
2: Yeah, I I can. So I took theater in in high school and I remember this I don't know, it feels like spiritual or like psychological moment where I could see myself in my mind with a mask on. And I remember like going through this motion of me like getting my fingers underneath the mask under my chin and starting to like pry them, pry it up. And it got to a a point in, in this vision in my mind where I could get up to my nose, but I would not or could not allow myself to take the mask all the way off, even for myself. So I think that masking for me is part of the stoic type of um, demeanor I tried to hold. I I wanted to be untouchable, unharmable. I wanted to be strong because I viewed my emotions and my needs as weak. And so I would wear a, a mask to everyone, including myself because I couldn't be weak. (laughs) And I, I wouldn't allow myself to be weak. So I really practiced at being cool and untouchable. And I mean, getting in trouble in school, getting detention, and I didn't even care. A good example of this is that I had mentioned before this overdose I had. Well, my sister, the one that is the second youngest, we have both the same mother and father. She's three years older than me. She's the one that found me. So she was 13 when, when she found me a vegetable. And I didn't talk to her about that event until I was in college with her at like 19 years old. So that's nine years where I didn't talk to, to her or even my father, anybody in my family about it because I was masking. And and the truth is is that throughout those 9 years I absolutely hated myself for what I had done to my sister. And I think this is a key thing right here. I hated myself for what I had done to my sister not what I had done to me. I didn't love myself enough. I didn't value myself enough to be upset that I almost killed myself, but I was incredibly upset that I had caused my sister that kind of harm. But I didn't talk about it. I didn't tell her that. And then on what I called the death anniversary which was the day that I had overdosed nine years before. I took her flowers and I gave her an apology. I apologized to her for what I had done. And I mean, she stood back and was like, What? what? You don't need to apologize to me. Like, this wasn't about me. Oh my gosh, you know? And she was very graceful about all of it. But that very big, pivotal moment in my life, a huge event, where I had nearly died, I masked that for nine years. And mm-hmm. that masking was encouraged in in my family. I, I wasn't um, in, encouraged to talk about that. <laughs> I wasn't encouraged to talk about my emotions or how I was doing or why that happened, why I took all those pills. No, that, that wasn't a conversation.
1: That was my experience, my family too, yeah. There was no check-ins. Yeah. The, the question was never how are you feeling, it's just what's going on, if, if that. Like, how was school? Not how are you feeling today? <laughs>
2: or like, what's your problem?
1: <laughs> right, because I had lots of problems throughout my life that were very visible to my, my whole family, but nobody, nobody asked about it.
0: Another saying that I like from Dr. Gamora Matei is you don't need drama for trauma, but you yeah. had some drama. This was, this was a pretty big hole that you started in. And was there a tipping moment for you? Or what did your path getting out of this hole look like?
2: Well, as far as this hole goes, I think there's some layers. So we can just start with maybe sobriety. I was early 20s, at most 80 pounds. I was without a home, without a license, without a car. I hadn't had a job in a couple of years. I was in really rough shape. Uh, my drug addiction was, was deep. And I don't know how, but... My sister, the one that found me when I had overdosed, she called me and I had been up for days and, you know, she said, Carly, I can't stop you from doing what you're doing. There's nothing that I can do about it. I don't want you to be living this way, but if you have children, I will take them. And I remember sitting at that table, having that conversation with her. I think the thing that made it so powerful coming from her is that we were the kids together in the toxic place, you know, of our childhood and for her to call me as an adult and say, you know, if you have children, I will take them. It, it shined a light on my behavior. And uh, it's almost
0: like she was saying that she would have wanted to rescue you and herself. Yes. And so if there were any other children that were going to be brought into the situation, she was going to try to rescue them in the ways that you both were not rescued.
2: She was going to be the adult that we were praying for, <laughs> <laughs> which she totally is. By the way, like she is the adult that <laughs> we wanted as, as kids, and and I am too. I I am becoming that adult, um, which is super rad.
0: That is, it is,
2: yeah. So within days of that conversation, I happened to run into somebody that lived in another town, which happened to be the town that my grandma lived in, and. I said, when are you going back to that town? And they said, tomorrow. And I said, if my bags are packed, can I catch a ride with you? And they said, yes. And I didn't tell my friends. I didn't tell my dad. I I didn't tell anybody. I just got in that car and went to my grandma's house. And she took me in. I uh, started cleaning up my act, got a job, put on some weight. And I had quite a few relapses over the next, I don't know, maybe five years. But I started Allowing myself to have a better life, I started working on finding some type of value in myself and, and some type of love. And so that's kind of how I got out of the drug addiction. Today I have almost five years sober off of dope, which is really cool. Yeah,
1: yeah that's
0: it's, nice. it's awesome. Yeah.
2: As far as, you know, getting out of the hole of maybe all of this um, codependent behavior, especially like, on the side of my quote unquote womanizing. Um, I spent five years, maybe four or five years single. I I bought a house. I moved into that house and my alcoholism was really, really bad at that point. But I stayed away from chasing the other high, which was finding the love from people. And so that f- four or five years really had a big impact on me and, and learning how to, be okay with just myself and and with loving myself.
0: What did that look like? Because, you know, we hear that a lot. You have to love yourself. You have to learn how to love yourself. And the lucky among us, myself, for instance, I learned to love myself mostly by being loved, you know, and I learned to take care of myself by being taken care of in my childhood. I can imagine it's a little more challenging. Not that you weren't loved. I'm sure there was love for you, but it doesn't sound like it was effectively expressed. <laughs> you, you were not taught by your parents, for instance, or how to love yourself. So what did that look like as an adult trying to...
2: So I I think that you nailed something that I'd like to mention, which is that I was loved. M- my folks loved me a lot, <laughs> all of us. They loved all of us a lot, but their love was impeded. There was a big rock in the way of that water getting to us, whether that was mental illness or Drug addiction, whatever that rock was, it impeded their love to us. And I think that a lot of times in codependency, the person that's not receiving the love thinks that that rock is their responsibility to move, and it's not. That's 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 the person that owns that rock. It was my parents' job to move that rock for themselves, whether that be through therapy or whatever. It, it wasn't my job. So I think that's a, a really big thing to realize.
0: And I think that's a great, that's a great image because I think you're exactly right. I think a lot of the codependent behaviors are exactly that. I need to move this person's rock and then the love and the care and the attention and the safety will flow. And it's just impossible (laughs) to move other people's rocks. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like me teaching myself to try to calm my dad's anger basically as being like my main goal as an early child you know because he wasn't going to do it
2: but it it was his responsibility to do it right like absolutely that's what he owns that rock and and i have to give credit to to glennon doyle i can't remember which one of her books or podcasts but she talks about that metaphor and and refers to it as love being impeded. And so I didn't come up with that myself. I I (laughs) learned that from Glennon.
1: You articulated it well. Yeah, delivered it well, (laughs) yeah.
2: Oh, well, thank you. So as far as learning how to love myself, or I think there were a few things at play. Number one is that I ended up joining a church and joining a band and having a weekly or sometimes multiple times a week check in with a community of people that, were seemingly healthy and showed me love and accepted me in most ways. But I, I've i started to feel this belonging with people that worked jobs and had children and loved their children and they paid their bills and they would be challenged with situations and they would deal with them in ways that weren't just straight anger and tantrums, you know, which was what I had been shown. And, and I started to have examples in my life of people that were seemingly healthy. And I, I think that I started to learn from them and started to practice those things myself. So changing my environment and the circle that I ran in was huge. Also doing things and following through, for example, buying a house. You know, I was pretty young when I bought a house and, you know, people that I had talked to about me doing this, they were like, I don't know, Carly, like that kind of have a bad track record. You know, are you sure you want to buy a house with some pretty deep debt? You know, you haven't been sober that long and so on and so forth. But I did it and I paid my mortgage and I paid my bills and I began to see that I could be relied upon. I could rely on myself myself to do these things without somebody next to me in bed and without a pipe in my hand. I will say that there was still a bottle in my hand, (laughs) but (laughs) for some reason I like, well, maybe not just for some reason, socially, it seemed like that was more normal and that was more okay to be drinking through it instead of being high through it. And so, so yeah, I started to build trust and follow through and show myself that I could
0: it's really the scaffolding process, right? Mm-hmm. You just have to layer by layer, you know, you, you test, you build another layer, you test it out, it holds. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. You survived this one, you survived that one. Right.
0: We've, I think, used uh, the kind of metaphor before, just like building your muscles. You just mm-hmm. got to do it every day, work, work it out.
1: And then you, you had to start getting in touch with your emotions in a real way, too, throughout this process.
2: Yes. And that was scary. And I think that I kept the mask on through a lot of it. But I started allowing myself to see under my mask more. And not just convincing myself that I was untouchable, but actually being like, okay, this stuff does hurt. <laughs> like and I do need to deal with it. And, you know, or I need to learn how to sit with it and how to respond instead of just react through these other yeah. tools. So so yeah, slowly but surely I started revealing my true face to myself. And I'm still doing that.
1: Yeah, not running away as soon as something is painful, just because you taught yourself that you can't handle it for whatever reason.
0: So giving up on some of these tools that were not serving you any longer, and then finding a community of people that told a different story about yourself and a different story about the possibilities of your life. And then also doing things that revealed to yourself that you were a trustworthy person, a reliable person. Those all sound like components of this process for you. Yes. I think one thing people struggle with as they start on their healing journey or however we want to describe it, and they start to work on giving up these tools that are not maybe serving them. I think when people struggle with maybe not having enough hope that it will be better on the other side. So they are tools, as you say, for relief and for comfort, whether it be alcohol or codependent behaviors or sex. And to give them up, you have to have some amount of faith that it will be better. Going forward, has that been your experience? That it has been better?
2: Yes, yes. Um, It's kind of like choose your hard because both ways are hard. It it's hard to recognize a codependent behavior, stop, see it, identify it, and then course correct. That is hard. (laughs) It is right, but it's also hard to maintain relationships where. I am constantly being a chameleon or constantly trying to predict somebody else's needs and belittling my own. So, so both directions are hard. but I think that breaking these patterns, you know, living sober and, and just starting to learn my authentic self and I, I think that believe that my needs are equal or have this equal value to other people's needs is the path that promotes personal growth. I think the other path promotes entanglement, mess, chaos, confusion. The other hard is a web, a tangly, tangly web that's very suffocating. Whereas this path of breaking the mold, I think does the opposite. It untangles. It allows breath. Like when I get out of a scary moment where I had, uh, you know, recognized my behavior and stopped and course-corrected. I come out of that breathing deeper and standing a little taller, you know, and my heart is pounding because that was the scariest thing ever that I just did. And I, but on the other side, I'm so proud.
0: It's achievement on the other, the feeling of pride and achievement. Yeah. Versus yeah. the other hard seems inevitably to lead to shame.
1: Yes. Yes. And when you, when you talk about the two types of hard, in my experience, it seems like the old way, the codependent way was harder. There was a lot more work involved in these stories that I was constantly telling myself and the lies I was telling and keeping these lies straight. What, who would I tell who, what, and, Mm -hmm. and, and the emotional avoidance, you know, I'm feeling this pain. I don't want to feel that. So I have to avoid it. So much unnecessary work
0: but you were good at it.
1: <laughs> You've I, been I was, doing it. For- <laughs> I was good at it, but good in that it resulted in the uh, right. what I was looking for, which was to just keep myself safe in each tiny little situation. The way I taught myself to.
2: Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Times when my wife and I have talked about some of these behaviors, and and I've you know expressed to her all of the thoughts that I went through trying to please her and answer the way that I thought she wanted me to answer. she's like, that sounds exhausting. <laughs> like, yeah. yes, it is so exhausting and and so I think that you're right, Brian, that I think that other way it, it may be harder and I, I think that I'm still in a, a phase of breaking th- for, like breaking that mold and it's it's pretty hard. <laughs> it's pretty challenging to say, you know what that was a lie. This is actually my truth, and having the faith that that truth will be accepted,
0: or if it's not accepted, that you will survive, regardless. <laughs> yes, right.
2: Yep, and I love that you bring that up because I think in another episode you guys had mentioned when Brian would would do these things, he'd be like, "Okay, like I survived. I didn't die. Well, did I think I was gonna die? Like,
1: <laughs> yes, felt like I, yeah,
2: yeah, it it felt felt like I was going to die, but you know, disappointing somebody and walking yeah. away from it and being like I'm going to be okay and they're going to be okay and <laughs> like nobody's going to die here. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and then that 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 may have took 5 minutes of facing fear instead of 5 minutes of giving into the fear and then 10 years of the consequences. Of, <laughs> <laughs> of not just spending 5 minutes in facing the fear.
0: So you mentioned your wife. Mm-hmm. So you've managed we we now know at least once to not run away what was different about this time that that allowed you to to stay in a relationship and commit to a relationship in a way that you had struggled to for so long
2: I think a a big part was that I was sober and fully sober I had I was in a program I had a sponsor I was not drinking I I wasn't escaping my feelings um, in, in that way and so that's how our relationship started. For the first like year and a half of our relationship, I, I was entirely sober. And also, this person, my wife, was what I would um, air quote call healthy. <laughs> she saw my behaviors once. Once she started realizing that I was people pleasing and not being authentic she would would say you know why are you doing that like I want to know you I don't want to know what you're trying to create to please me like and so I think that she called me to to a higher place she wanted to know me she she wasn't just okay with me pleasing her and and being what she needed and I think that 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 made a big difference and I also think that like I had done a lot of work in, in the chapter of my mom. And it's hard for me to even talk about this because that, you, you had mentioned the term hole. Like, how did you get out of that hole? And that felt like the hole that was inside of my body that was missing was my mom. And so when my relationship with my wife started, I was actually my mom's What do you call that payee representative payee so she was receiving in money from social security disability and that money was coming to me and I allotted the money to her paid her bills things like that I was also landlord she was living in my home (laughs) we were also getting sober together There there was these things that that were happening and then I met my my wife I moved in with with my wife and then a little while later, my mom, I'm still her payee, my mom's payee, she's still living in my house, I'm still managing her bills and things like that, and I go over to the house one day, and I can tell that she's high, and I confront her, and within a few months, I would kicked her out, and signed over my rights, and said, like, you gotta go. And so, for the first time in my life, I told my mom that she had to leave, whereas I had always felt left prior to that. So that was huge because the work that I had been doing allowed me to love myself enough to say, I'm filling this hole now. I'm filling a hole inside of me that my mom was never capable of filling and still isn't. And so I think that was very catapulting into me being able to have a quote unquote functioning relationship with my wife.
0: That's a very hopeful Story. I want to touch on your experience with the 12-step programs, Was did not particularly work for Brian, but a lot of people find them very helpful.
1: At least not at the time.
0: If you did find them helpful, I want... to give you an opportunity to, to talk about that to those people who may be thinking about joining either Coda or AA or some community twelve step community.
2: Sure, yeah. So I have not experienced Coda as a, a young child. I was like the kid out there dancing on the floor at the Halloween party for their nar- Narcotics Anonymous group. You know, so I was I was very familiar with the rooms and um, you know the environment and and so I, I knew that was a place I could go to. And I did, and I was going to a meeting every day. I got a sponsor. I was active on like the pool league at the club that I, I was going to meetings constantly at. I was on their pool league, and it was so fun, and I found community there. And um, I worked my steps twice, once with one sponsor and once with another. And I needed it. I needed that rigidity in the beginning. I needed the do the steps or die mf type mentality. Uh, <laughs> you know? I I needed people to I needed to hear the stories. I needed to be reminded by the person coming in the room that was was fresh. You know, I I needed to see that to remind myself of where I don't want to go back to. I also needed to talk about it and be proud of myself and say, "Yes, I have 6 months sober. I'm so excited." You know, everyone clap, give me a chip. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And I I needed that so bad and it served me for, for a long time. I think that as I started to love myself and started to be confident that the alcohol and the drugs no longer controlled me, I started to see the rooms a little different. You know, there was a lot of war stories coming in. There was a lot of dysfunctional teachings, even how the 12 steps are worded. I, I listened to the 12-step um, episodes you guys have done, and I was like, oh my gosh, some of the wording is is kind of scary. Um,
1: yeah, defeatist a little bit.
2: Yeah, yeah. It started to feel very rigid. And I actually, I think like a year and a half into sobriety, I decided that I wanted to try to drink. And my sponsor was like, I cannot be okay with that. And I cannot continue to sponsor you if you want to try casually drinking. And so uh, that's how that relationship ended. And I casually drink, um, never getting past the level of buzzed for, for gosh, like maybe maybe a year, year and a half. And in that time realized that I, I do have more say, like it, I'm not, It's it's not like a disease that I have. Like I don't have an allergy to alcohol. Like, you know, I'm not having an allergic reaction right now. Um, so so the root problem was my trauma, was, you know, that that mom-sized hole inside of me. And I was medicating that through alcohol and drugs. Well, once that started to be resolved, that hole, the alcohol and the drugs were no longer as needed. It's almost like taking ibuprofen when you don't have pain. And so I, I no longer... Um, felt the need to go to to these meetings. I no longer felt the need to have a sponsor that I check in with. And then, while I was casually drinking, I no longer felt the need to drink. So now I don't drink by by choice, by preference. it's I would rather be able to say i'm I'm totally sober and I've overcome my childhood trauma than to say, Yeah, I'll take a beer and and i I think that is um, a preference of my own. and yeah, I, I think that the 12-step program can be incredibly helpful for somebody that needs structure and rigidity and needs it now.
0: I appreciate the way you describe that, that initially and for, for many years, that was so helpful to you as a person who was not provided that structure, that safety structure. Um, but then as you became to feel more safe in yourself and your own body and your own decisions and your own capacity, that became somewhat stifling rather than protective.
2: Yeah, it was almost as if I outgrew it and it, it became, I don't know if this is what stifling means, but it became a ceiling and I was taller than the room. Nice. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> which which is ideal, right? I mean, yeah. um, that's, I think, maybe part of one of the things I don't particularly like about the language and that this is supposed to define you for the rest of your life. Yeah. But really, it can be a program that is exactly what you need. But then I, I think ideally you don't need it anymore, like your ibuprofen metaphor. Right. <laughs> it's not something that it has to be true of you for the rest of your life or that it's not true at all. It's not this binary yeah, choice.
2: Yeah. yeah, I think another parallel, and, and this could be fairly controversial, but is, is welfare. These kind of programs are meant to help people when they need it, to help them get on their feet and to start building a structure or a foundation around them to be able to, to hold the weight of life. Whereas a lot of times in, in my experience as, as a child with both of my parents receiving benefits for my whole life, that's not what it was meant for. They, they could have done something different and probably been a lot happier and healthier people if they hadn't relied on, on welfare. I understand that there are different circumstances and different environments, but I think that my childhood could have changed a lot if my dad had a job. <laughs> if, if he would have been doing something to build that follow-through I talked about that I built with buying a house and paying my bills and showing up to work, if he would have been doing that for himself, I think he would have been a lot happier of a man. And he may still even be alive today. And, and same with my mom. And these programs are there to, to help us get on our feet and help us start making the changes we need to make to stand on our own and if we continue to walk on a crutch after the fracture is healed, then other things are going to start to fail.
0: They start to define who you are. Yes. Mm-hmm. Rather, than, rather than help you become who you are meant to be.
1: Yeah, It kind of reminded me of, of identifying with, with having depression and, and, and okay, well, I'll just, I'll just take an antidepressant for the rest of my life. There we go. That's the solution as opposed to getting to the root of why mm-hmm. depression was there.
0: Um, so, One thing that you mentioned again in your write up that you have come to understand or appreciate is the value of forgiveness. Can you talk a little bit about
2: that? You know, I I think we've all heard that that old saying about, you know, having a grudge or resentment is like swallowing poison and expecting the other person to die. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I, I don't know where forgiveness started for me. I don't know if I forgave my mom and my dad first or if I started forgiving me first, or maybe they, they began happening altogether. But I think that when I started making amends with people and recognizing that like I was worth forgiving, even down to like when my I had overdosed and I apologized to my sister, I realized that I was holding these resentments against myself that other people weren't even holding on to. My sister wasn't angry with me for almost dying. And so the power of forgiveness is that maybe another metaphor is that I had this like resentment towards myself and towards my folks that was like a huge balloon inside of me. And it was taking up a lot of space, but it was just full of air. It felt so heavy, but it really did nothing but hold me down. I think that forgiveness is multiple choices over time. For, for me, I could for forgive my mom for one action she took, but there are a multitude of actions prior to that that I, I want to work through. And I, I felt a need to work on forgiveness because of how much it was holding me down and how much space it was taking up in my belly. It, it reminds me of shame venting. I had so much mm-hmm. anger. Like that reservoir was overflowing and so if a mother didn't acknowledge their child in public I become so angry and I'm like <laughs> losing it because that child is being neglected the way that I was and it starts boiling over uh, inappropriate places and times and so forgiveness to me is is not clean it's it's not there's not a formula. <laughs> <laughs> it feels very moment by moment and situation by situation. Today, I still work on forgiving myself. I, I forgave myself at the beginning of this podcast because I didn't get all of these apps and things ready to go. And I showed up a couple minutes late. I had to uh-huh. consciously close my eyes and forgive myself and say, like, it's okay. This doesn't deem your worth.
1: Do you find having forgive the same things more than once? Do you?
2: Yeah, (laughs) it's almost like a spiral in my head. Like, I'll forgive myself once, but it'll be back in a couple minutes. I'll do it again. It it feels like a very living document, you know, like it is alive. Forgiveness is is an action word.
0: That should be one of the 12 steps. That should be the first step. (laughs) Right. I forgive myself. I just want to thank you again for sharing this story. It's so interesting to me because, you know, people who have struggled with codependency, part of what they struggle with often is seeing themselves as not worthy, seeing, them, seeing themselves as not enough. And when you hear stories like yours, Carly and Brian and, and Jason's, and, and they're just stories of extraordinary people faced with extraordinary challenges and responding to them with such imagination <laughs> and, mm. and courage and tenacity. And it's really, it's really impressive. I feel very honored that you, you came and shared with us, Carly. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you so much.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely welcome. And thanks for having me. And I want you both to know that for me, you were some folks that had walked in the deep caves that I was very familiar with, but you had a lantern and you lit up those dark caves and, and helped lead me through. And so I would like to be able to do that same thing for children to come if I have them and for other people that maybe have experienced these same things and it feels like a purpose. We didn't go through this stuff for nothing, so let's let's make purpose of it. And just thank you so much for for lighting your lantern and and for leading the way.
1: Well, you're very welcome. <laughs> <laughs>